Well, at the end of last Sunday's message, uh, I had a few of you come up to me and make a very insightful observation based on last week's text. And it was something I wanted to hit on in the sermon, but ran out of time. So I thought I would just address it this morning, sort of launch with this. And the observation that some of you guys had was this, how could they? How could they? And I'm talking about the soldiers who went out to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And really not how could they arrest him, because we know the answer to that question. A good soldier, a good law enforcement agent, when he's called upon, will go out and do his job. And those men that night dutifully went out and they confronted this man that they had been told was a a, a political revolutionary and a blasphemer. And so we don't blame them for following orders that night. Here's the question. How could they keep following those orders after what they saw and experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane? How could they keep doing it? They, They saw a suspect that wasn't afraid, that didn't try to run away. Instead, he stepped out towards them, confronted them, asked questions, and then they both heard and felt the power of his word. They got knocked backwards when he claimed the divine name of Yahweh, and they fell to the ground. And then they witnessed him literally heal the ear of a man who had it sliced off by Simon Peter. And yet it appears, at least from the text, that not one of them paused to say, what are we doing out here? Why are we arresting this man? This seems crazy. Instead, what did they do? They recovered, they got back to their feet, and they continued with the arrest, and they Drag Jesus off to his death. Just doing my job is what they would have said. But how could they? And the answer is, of course, that's who they are by nature. And this is important for us to understand. By nature, this is who unredeemed mankind is. The Bible says that apart from a supernatural work of God upon the heart, the sinful mind of natural man is hostile to the things of God. Deep in their hearts, whether they want to admit it or not, they hate God. They hate God, and they operate as his enemy each and every day. John told us about this in chapter 3 of his gospel. I know it's hard to accept this, but this is what John said. And this this is as true today in our world as we are interacting with unbelievers around us, as true today as it was in the garden that night. This is what John said. He said, this is the judgment, the judgment. The light has come into the world, but men loved what? They loved darkness. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, hates it, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds, these evil deeds, will be exposed. Now, most of the time as we're interacting with unbelievers, that hatred and that fear is masked by social politeness social politeness. But at times, in moments of stress, and moments of self-preservation, that mask slips off and we see what really lies beneath the heart of man. We see the deep-seated hostility that sinners have towards God and towards the things of God. And of course, it makes no sense to us as believers, right? Why? Because we've been given spiritual eyes to see. So it makes no sense to us. But the soldiers that night, they didn't have eyes to see the truth. They were in the grip of the enemy, And it's important for us to know this. It's only by the grace of God that we're not like them. Right? It's only by God's grace. And as hard as it is to believe, these men, they went 
They went back to their barracks that night and they went to sleep without a second thought. Some of them went back and probably started playing cards again, sitting around the table, shooting the breeze, playing cards. They had looked truth square in the face. They had seen two miracles, but then they were laid it aside, preferring to keep living as blind men groping around in the dark because they loved their sin, because their deeds were evil. So never underestimate. As we, as we look at stories like this, do not underestimate natural man's indifference and cruelty and deep-seated hatred for the light. That's a heavy introduction. Grab your Bibles. I mean, if you were thinking about that, I, I just I wanted to address it because it is, it is hard to believe that they were able to just come back and go, go back to life as normal. John 18. We're biting off quite a bit this morning. That's where we left off last Sunday. Jesus, in effect, turned himself in, didn't he? He turned himself in. He made it easy for Judas and for the soldiers to find him and arrest him. But the horror of all that took place in the garden that night has left the disciples shocked and afraid, and they are now on the run, right? They have fled into the night, and they've fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 13, 7, which says, strike the shepherd and what? and the sheep will scatter. In fact, Jesus quoted that, that, that same prophecy from Zechariah on the night he was betrayed. He looked at his guys and said, you will all fall away because of me this night. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. He knew his guys were going to flee. Now, again, imagine as, as, we, as we come into this text, imagine the roller coaster that these guys have been on in the last seven days, right? From the heights of seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, that's pretty spectacular, to entering into the city of Jerusalem to messianic shouts from the people, but then watching with concern as Jesus goes through the temple courts, overturning tables and, and pronouncing woes upon the most powerful men in Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. They've been going up and down and up and down, and now they find themselves players in this current horrifying situation. The master that they love, the Lord that they love has now been taken from them. Put yourself in their sandals. What are you thinking in this moment? Look at verse 12. So the cohort, or the Roman cohort, and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So as we saw last Sunday, this was an operation of, of unlikely partners. We have both Jews and Gentiles cooperating together to arrest Jesus. And what that means symbolically is that the whole world is now aligned against the very Son of God in the garden. And it says they bound Jesus. They, they treated him as a legitimate threat. And, and if we're honest, rightly so, because he has a history of being a miracle worker. So I'm sure those who sent the soldiers out that night in the briefing said, hey, look, this guy has done, we've, we've seen this guy do miracles. And there might be concern that he's going to somehow use some supernatural miracle to free himself. But we know, looking back at the story, that he has no intention of doing that. Jesus only remains bound by these chains because he is sovereignly obeying his Father's will. It's his choice to be captured that night. It's his desire, it's his will to be taken into custody. And think about this. He could have done all kinds of things here, right? Do you remember uh, Matthew talks about this? Uh, John doesn't mention it, but Matthew says that when Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away, what does he say? He says, don't you know that I can appeal to my father and he will immediately put at my disposal more than 12 legions of, agents, of, of angels. Jesus has all the firepower he needs 
to break free of those chains and destroy all the men in that garden. But in that next breath, as he's speaking to Peter, he expresses the key principle that we need to see is that he's sovereign in, in control of all of this. He says basically to Peter, my father could send those angels, but then how would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus is in control. He knows everything that's happening. So now what is he facing as he's taken away? Well, over the next five to six hours, he's going to undergo a series of trials. He's going to be passed back and forth between the Jewish authorities and the Roman civil authorities. And this is all going to take place early on Friday morning. By noon, he'll be nailed to a cross and bearing the full weight of the wrath of God. Look at verse 13 now. Let's set the historical context. It says, And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who would advise the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So ironic, right, that Caiaphas would speak such a prophecy about the Son of God. Now John is the only gospel writer that mentions this first hearing in front of this man named Annas. The others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus on the trials that come after this, the ones that take place before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. And, and you might ask the question, well, why the different accounts? And we've said this before, but it bears repeating on occasion. John is writing his gospel about 25 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written down. So rather than just repeat the same material, he's filling out the narrative for us, giving us more detail that the others didn't so we can see the full picture. And I don't know about you, but I appreciate that, right? Seeing the full picture. Now, under Jewish law, the high priest served for life. It was a lifetime appointment like our Supreme Court justices, right? They just go on and on and on. But Rome didn't like that arrangement. And I understand why. They felt like that gave one man too much power and for too long. So what Rome would do is at their whim, if they felt like a high priest was being uncooperative, they would simply remove him from office and establish somebody that would be more cooperative. So as we get to the time of Christ, you have to understand the office of high priest is far more political than it is spiritual. And the men that serve in that office are not godly men at all. Mostly they were wealthy, well-connected Sadducees who were able to play this political game of appeasing the people just enough, but more than anything, making their Roman overlords happy. Now, this guy mentioned in verse 13, Annas. His full name is Ananias ben Seth. We have lots of data about his life from Josephus. He'd been high priest for the years between 6 and 15. Okay, During that time when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, Annas had been high priest. And Josephus tells us that in the year 15, Annas ran afoul of the Roman prefect, the one who came before Pontius Pilate. His name was Valerius Gratus, and Gratus took the high priesthood away from Annas. Now, that doesn't mean that Annas' influence was diminished, not by a long shot. Soon after that, Annas was able to make sure that his oldest son, Eliezer, became high priest in Israel. And then years later, he made sure that his son-in-law, his son-in-law was high priest as well. And that man's name is Yosef ben Caiaphas. Okay, and he's the notorious high priest at the time that Jesus is crucified. Amazingly, over the next 30 years, three more of Annas' sons would become high priests. So this is a, a very influential family. But what's interesting, historically, when you look at it, they were not beloved by the people. 
because they were more beholden to Rome than they were to the people. And actually, future generations of Jews point to the house of Annas as a symbol of corruption. Listen to this quote from the Mishnah that was written down 170 years later after Annas. It says, Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpents' hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat the people with clubs. That's how the people felt about them. But guess what? The Romans appreciated that heavy-handedness on their behalf. Now, uh, I promised last week uh, maps and photos and things, and I'm a visual learner, so I just want to put a picture up on the screen that might help us to, to get a visual on what we're talking about when we talk about these people. Occasionally, Hollywood does a pretty good job of making a film with some authenticity. And so you see here, uh, the robes look great. You see the high priest breastplate that he's wearing around his neck, right? So Caiaphas, Annas, you also see in this picture, see the guy in blue with his eyes cast down and the gentleman over here on the end? These are the types of servants of the high priest that would have been in the garden, like Malchus, who had his ear cut off. They're, they're, they're slaves or servants of the high priest. Also, the guys in the back, you can sort of see what one of the temple guards might have looked like as well. So that just helps me uh, uh, and maybe helps you as well to picture what we're dealing with here. So Annas was the patriarch of this corrupt and powerful family. And even after he was deposed as high priest, he remained the most dominant figure in Jerusalem. You have to know this. In fact, most of the establishment continued to look at him as the high priest. It didn't matter who Rome put in the office. Annas was their guy. Caiaphas, for his part, the son-in-law of Annas, became high priest at a relatively young age. Most historians believe that he was in his early to mid-30s when he became the high priest. But he served as high priest from 18 to 36, one of the longest tenures of this period, which tells you that Caiaphas was a very good politician. He was very good, especially with the Romans. History also tells us that Annas and Caiaphas had a very large family compound in the upper city of Jerusalem. And according to John, this is the first place that they took Jesus once they bound him. They took them to Caiaphas's house. Now, here's a map, okay? So we looked last week at where Gethsemane is, right opposite the Temple Mount, you see, to the, to the west of it. And we looked at where the traditional spot of the upper room was in that red dot, which is where Jesus gathered with his guys. Caiaphas's house is that blue dot, not far away, also located in the upper city. Now, it's debatable as to whether the site that historians and archaeologists have picked is the actual house of Caiaphas. There is a pretty good early tradition for it. And it's interesting, archaeologists, they'll dig into the ground, they'll look and see what they find, but they'll also look to see, well, how old is the tradition that the church established uh, for this particular site? And for this one, it's fairly recent or fairly early, about the mid-5th century. Uh, there was a Byzantine church built on this site at about 450 and, and that tells you something, right? Later, of course, that was just, this is, by the way, this is the history of Jerusalem. Built by the, the church around 450, then destroyed by the Muslims who came in and conquered Jerusalem in the 7th century, then rebuilt by the European crusaders, then destroyed again by the Ottoman Turks. That's pretty much the history of Jerusalem. Everything there. Today, the Roman Catholic Church oversees this site. I'm going to give you a, a picture of it. It's a beautiful building. Roman Catholic Church oversees this site. This current structure was built in 1931. 
And they, they do a nice job of maintaining. You can visit it today. When archaeologists first dig into, dug into the site, they identified it very quickly as a, as a very wealthy man's home. It was much larger and more lavish than most first century homes, built on three levels and very Greek in its style. You can see it's beautiful there. Here's what the, the courtyard looks like. And it, if this is the location of the site of Caiaphas' and Annas' house, this would be the courtyard where Jesus was tried, right in this spot, which is very interesting to consider. And then one of the most interesting sites uh, or parts of this site, these stone steps that they have here, those stone steps are original to the first century. The wall that you see behind is much more recent, but those steps, if this is the right site, those are the very steps that Jesus uh, climbed in order to go up and be tried in Annas' house. Then one last interesting uh, feature of this particular site, uh, as archaeologists were digging, they, they found three levels, and then they put their pickaxe into the ground, and they found something below that third level. It's a dungeon. It's a, it's, a, it's a jail cell, basically. You can see tourists stand. You can go stand in it today. And, and if, and I think it's, I, again, if this is the site and Jesus was held over until the morning before he was sent to Pontius Pilate, this is likely the dungeon where Jesus spent those hours. Again, if this is the particular location. So it's a very interesting site to go to look at. Okay, so that's, that's our history tour for this morning. Thank you very much. I'll be here with you all week. Um, but no, I, I just, I think it helps to see some of the visuals. And, and one, one of the great things, guys, about archaeology and about going to Israel is, yeah, the Bible comes alive. You can read it on a flat page, but you're like, man, these things happen. These places are actually there. And uh, it's more than the Mormons can say, for example, right? Who you ask them about their archaeology and they go, well, we don't know. So it's important. It's important stuff. Okay, I'm going to take that off the screen just so that you don't get obsessed with it. Okay, so Caiaphas, Caiaphas had determined that Jesus had to die. Remember back in John 11, he had said so, and it's referenced here in verse 14 in our text for this morning. Remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave, and the Sanhedrin had convened, and they said, if we keep letting him do these signs, everybody's going to believe in him. They're in panic mode, right? And here was the fear. They said, and the Romans will then come and they'll take away our place, our, our temple. This is, again, the, the powerful overseers of the temple saying, the Romans are going to come. They're going to take away our temple. They're going to take away our nation. And that is what men like Annas feared the most. That's what he feared, that the Romans would just flat out run out of patience with the Jewish people. And, th and this shows up in the historical record as well. Romans did not get Jewish people. Their religion, their culture, all the rioting, all the constant friction, they didn't get it. And so Annas feared that the Romans are just going to get tired of us, they're going to send in the legions, and they're going to squash us like bugs. And what that would mean for men like Annas and Caiaphas is loss of power, loss of authority, and the end of their money train. The end of their money train, which was rooted in the corrupt business practices of the temple. So John told us back in chapter 11, he said, Caiaphas said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage, I'll put it on the screen, it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. In other words, you fools, why are you sitting around doing nothing? It's in your best interest that we just kill this one guy. It's better that he die than we all perish. That's where Caiaphas was coming from. 
So those are the players in this drama that's about to unfold. And now you've seen the sight. Let's drop down to verse 15 and we'll see how this plays out. What we're going to see now in John's account is, is the interrogation of Jesus and the temptation of Peter happening at the same time, happening simultaneously. And what John does is he alternates between those, those two aspects of the same scene. Remember, both men are being questioned, and both men are, are put under pressure to give answers. Jesus is going to do so calmly and factually without denying anything, Peter, on the other hand, is going to react in fear, and he is going to surrender everything, his honesty, his integrity, and his loyalty to Christ. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, who would that be? That's John. That, that's code for John speaking of himself. He doesn't like to name himself in his narrative, so this is Peter and John. In his way of thinking, he's just another disciple. So get the picture. Jesus is arrested. The, other, the 11 flee into the night, but two of them don't go far. They turn around and they watch to see where the soldiers are leading Jesus to. And they follow him, right? And, and you have to, again, you've got to put yourself in, in their sandals that night. Hundreds of soldiers, there they go, and these guys decide we're going to follow them. That's a very dangerous and risky decision. But look at how bold John is. Keep going in verse 15. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. That is a bold move. So John somehow embedded himself with the crowd that was moving into that courtyard, right, that we looked at on the screen. He came in with the crowd. Now, how is he connected to the high priest, to Annas and Caiaphas? Historians would love to know the answer to that question. We don't know. It's possible that through his father Zebedee, who was a very successful businessman, fisherman up in Galilee, or some have, have said, well, maybe John has a, 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 a priestly line in his extended family, and he was known through that priestly line. But whatever the case, he's known to the doorkeeper of this compound, and John goes right in, right? And now he finds himself, imagine this, in close proximity to Jesus, who's about to be interrogated. My guess is less than 50 feet away. So he's close. Now, he's a terrible wingman, isn't he? Because he left Peter outside. Terrible wingman. Verse 16, but Peter was standing at the door outside, like, can I get in? So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Good job, John. Went back to, for your friend, right? He goes back to the gate. He speaks again to the doorkeeper who knows him. He vouches for Peter, and he's let in. Now, John tells us in verse 17 a little bit about the doorkeeper. She's a slave girl or a servant of the high priest, similar to Malchus, right? And for some reason, whatever reason, God's sovereignty, at, on this night, she is posted at the gate to see who's coming and going. And if she knows John well enough to let him in, my guess is she also knows he has sympathies towards Jesus, which means she may suspect the same thing of Peter. And that's why she says in verse 17, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And I wondered to myself, what is she concerned about? Why the question? I mean, there's lots of soldiers around, so she, she couldn't have felt unsafe. But I wonder if she's thinking to herself, okay, I let one of you Jesus guys in, but now two. 
What's going are you are you planning something? Like maybe she's concerned about that. We don't know what's going through her head, but she asked the question, are you also one of his followers? But the way she phrases the question is important. It's in the negative form, right? You're not one of them, are you? And I think the way she frames that question gives Peter sort of an easy path to just say, nope, and quickly dismiss her. I'm not. Now, was Peter caught off guard by the question? Probably. Did it send a shiver of fear through his body that he was being asked that question when he was getting so close to being near Jesus again? Probably. So he just quickly says, I'm not, I'm not one of them. And he moves on, right? The key question is, was Peter already prepared to lie when that question came at him? And again, my guess is probably. And, and I don't think any of us would have done any better in the stress of that situation. But my guess is, above all, he was there to save his own skin. And so I think he was prepared to lie. Now, he may have winced inside slightly, like, ah, that was a lie. Have you ever done that before? It just flows out of your mouth quickly, accidentally. You lie and you go, oh, that wasn't good. So he may have done that, maybe not. It's possible that at this point he's like, you know what? She's just a servant girl. It doesn't matter. But from this point forward, now things are going to snowball, right? See, had Peter known his own heart that night, if he had uh, been aware of his weakness, if he had any measure of wisdom, at that point he would have said, I need to go. I've just lied. I'm stepping into something I'm not ready for. I need to go. But he's trapped now between two things, between his love for the Lord, which is genuine, and his fear of being arrested. And he's spiritually vulnerable to attack. Do you remember up in the upper room, according to Luke, Jesus literally said to Peter, looked straight at Peter and said, what an amazing, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. How would that have felt? And yet, he's still not prepared for what's about to happen. He heard the Lord say that, but, and we'll talk about it later, he's still so confident in himself that he's unprepared. I remember also, Luke tells us that when Jesus went away to pray in the garden, he said, I'm going to go over there and pray. And what did he say to Peter, James, and John? He said, guys, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus, he wasn't joking around when he said that. He was warning them that there are serious things about to happen. Pray that you won't be tempted. And so what did the guys do? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. So Peter's wandered into the path of temptation here. He's gone into the courtyard of the high priest, and he is not at all spiritually prepared for this time of testing. You have to know that. Verse 18, now the slaves and the officers, so how many times has he denied the Lord? Once so far. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So picture the scene on that courtyard. Somebody starts a, a, a small fire in the corner or the outskirts of the courtyard, and some folks, this would be natural, start wandering over to it, and they're, they're getting themselves warm, right? It's a cold night. There's servants there. We've seen that, right? Servants, but also members of the, of the temple guard. Okay, the temple guard. And then there's Peter. And my guess is he's warming his hands, but he's keeping an eye on what's happening with Jesus, right? That's why he's there. No doubt he's trying to be discreet. He's trying to blend in. Don't recognize me. Do you think he's nervous? Absolutely. You, the tension of that night would have been brutal. He's nervous. 
If some of these temple guards around this fire were in the olive grove that night, they saw him pull his sword out and swing it. So he's nervous. He's in a very awkward and very dangerous situation. If they had hoodies back then, he would have put his hood up, right? Right? But he's, I'm, I'm guessing his head is down. He's trying not to make eye contact. But then the question comes. Drop down to verse 25. The question comes. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and somebody around that fire gets suspicious. They look at him and go, who's this guy? Who is this stranger? And they ask, this person asks in a very similar way as the servant girl at the gate, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Now, we all know this truth. Lying gets easier the more we do it. We tell one lie, and it becomes a slippery slope. Lying gets easier. And so Peter does it. He says, Peter denied it and said what? I am not. In Matthew's account, he reports that Peter puts it in the form of an oath. Listen, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Amazing. But he's not in the clear yet. Another guy standing by the fire recognized him. And this guy's a relative of Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off. Verse 26, did I not see you in the garden with him? He asks. In this moment, this courtyard has become a death trap for Peter, and he knows it. He is desperate now to shake these people off. And my guess is he is in full-blown panic mode now. He has been spotted. And you have to know this as well. As that scene is unfolding, Jesus is being interrogated. Jesus is going to get punched by a soldier. And, and Peter's trying to keep an eye on that. And the stress of having the Lord going through that and the stress of now his own self-preservation, it breaks him. And you have to understand why. There's a lot going on here. He is broken. And so he quickly denies Christ again. And this time, more emphatically. In fact, Luke says that Peter snapped. I don't know what you're talking about, he says to this third man. I don't know what you're talking about. Matthew reports, this is amazing, that Peter began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. The stress of that moment, the fear, the sin that had snowballed and piled up broke Peter in that moment. And then you see the words as they fall out of his mouth, this sound in the distance, right? A rooster crows. And it all comes flooding back to Peter, what Jesus had predicted. And Luke records what comes next. And I cannot imagine this. It, 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 it causes me to get really emotional when I think about this. It says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. From across the courtyard, he made eye contact with Peter, his friend, who just said, I don't know the man. It's amazing to me that Jesus undergoing his own level of stress, is aware of where John and Peter are in that courtyard. And he's able to make eye contact with his friend. And Luke says, and this is probably one of the great understatements of Scripture, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. That look from Jesus must have pierced his heart to the, to the, to the depths of it, right? I cannot imagine that Peter ever forgot that look, ever. So this is tough. 
We'll come back to this in a moment when we talk about application, but this is tough. Now, good news is we don't leave Peter here because we know how his life ends. Peter is no Judas, and that's important. He will repent. He will trust in the Lord's grace. He will be restored to fellowship with Jesus before we finish this gospel. And then having been strengthened by the Lord, he will do great things for the kingdom of God. We have to know that that's coming. But that's for another Sunday. We'll get there, I promise. But don't leave Peter there. See it, feel it, but don't leave him there. Okay, now let's go back up to verse 19. What's the contrast that John Gross, uh, uh, presents to us, right? We saw Peter fall f- flat on his face. How about Jesus? Look at verse 19. The high priest, again, this is Annas, not Caiaphas. Now, it's interesting. John refers to him as the high priest, right? Why? Because of his stature, because of his importance, and because back then, Again, the Jews still saw things as, well, if you're high priest once, you're high priest forever. You know how sometimes we refer to former presidents as president, right? President Obama, President Trump. We say those things. Same thing here, but this is Annas. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So why? We know who Annas is, but why does Jesus get brought to him before the official formal high priest? And I think it's possible. I can't prove this, but... I think it's possible that there is a very wicked motive before, uh, for why Jesus was dragged before this man first. History tells us very clearly that Annas was exceedingly wealthy. And how did he get wealthy? Off that temple business, the corrupt temple business, the, the markup on the sacrificial animals, the exorbitant uh, uh, markup that they had on the exchange of temple currency. That's how he got rich. And remember, twice, Jesus went into those temple courts and he chased out the vendors, right? So is it possible that this was personal for Annas? This is the guy that's been attacking my business. This is the guy that tells me I'm corrupt and Annas wants to be there to gloat over his downfall. It's possible. Now, this is where the legalities of the situation come into play. Before we get to that, look at the two subjects that Annas is focused on. Tell me about your disciples And then tell me about your teaching. Obviously, there's a concern among Annas and his crew about the popularity of Jesus, about whether or not he's fomenting some type of revolution. So how many disciples do you have, Rabbi? Tell me. Where are they right now? How many do you have and where are they? Do you have followers that we don't know about? Annas is trying to figure out how widespread this potential revolution is. And when you're with these disciples, Rabbi, what do you teach them? Is your teaching in line with the elders of Israel? And most importantly, who do you say that you are? He wants to know about the disciples and about his teaching. Now, you have to understand, according to Jewish law, this entire hearing is illegal. All of it. First of all, again, Annas is not the official high priest. He has no legal standing to even begin this inquiry. He's simply asserting his raw power because he can because nobody's going to stop him because of who he is. Secondly, it's being done at an illegal time, in the middle of the night and without the full presence of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, in the middle of the night. And by the way, the Talmud is very clear about about when legal proceedings can take place. Listen, these guys were violating everything. They knew this was true. They They just didn't care. That's how big of a threat Jesus was. The Talmud says this. Listen, criminal processes can neither commence 
nor terminate except during the course of a day. It says, if the person is acquitted, the sentence may be pronounced during that day, but if he's condemned, the sentence cannot be pronounced until the next day. And then it goes on to talk about how you can't even have a hearing on the night of a festival or a feast. So they're violating their own law here. Third, the Talmud also has strict rules about what kind of evidence is acceptable in court. And one of the most important rules they had was witnesses had to be brought in to testify and confirmed by the court before a single question could be asked of the defendant. Witnesses had to come first. By the way, that's straight from the Torah. In fact, I'll give you a passage. Deuteronomy 19. Whoa, forgot about that one. Deuteronomy, nope. Wow, I'm behind. Here we go. Deuteronomy 19. I know I get so wrapped up and I forget to click. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses is a matter to be confirmed. So we need witnesses first and a minimum of two. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have, who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in office in those days. He goes on. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. How many of you guys would love to see that happen in America? Whew. Look what it says. Thus you shall purge what? The evil. From among you. Does God care about legal proceedings and standards? Absolutely. Some of them are evil. This hearing was evil. He says, look at the last verse. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. That's called deterrence, right? They'll see it and go, nope, I'm not doing that. So, no witnesses, just a straight inquiry of Jesus. Fourth and finally, Jewish law was clear that a suspect cannot be compelled to testify against himself, like our Fifth Amendment, right? Which protects us against self-incrimination. And yet this is exactly what Annas is trying to do, to cause Jesus to incriminate himself. So serious question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. What if I ever got put in a legal situation like this where everything happening around me is, you know, is illegal and unjust. What do you do? Well, look how Jesus responds. Let's go back to this. Jesus answers him, Annas. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. By the way, notice he doesn't, he doesn't even respond to Annas' question about his disciples. Skips that part. Remember, this is the good shepherd protecting his sheep to the very end. He's not going to give them any information about his followers. Verse 21, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So look, Jesus taught that vengeance is to be left to God. Man should not retaliate. So when you're insulted, do what? Turn the other cheek. But, and at the same time, there's another biblical principle involved. We're not to allow injustice to go unchecked. As I said, standards of law matter to God. In fact, in the Torah, Leviticus 19, it says, You shall do no injustice in court. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So both of those principles are true. So what Jesus says and does here is perfectly in line with the Scripture. Could he have remained silent? 
and said nothing? Absolutely. But in choosing to speak, he's not being uncooperative here, nor is he issuing any threats. He is simply responding according to the law, according to what the standards were of the day. If his teaching was in question, great, then bring the evidence, but do it legally. Bring the witnesses. Jesus is saying, look, I've spoken openly and publicly from the synagogues to the temple courts, right? Wherever my people gather, ask them what I teach, but do it legally, according to the law. So he's basically saying to them, look, I am not some political revolutionary. I am not whispering in the shadows. I am not fomenting any type of conspiracy. And at the same time, he's letting them know that the violations that are happening here, this is a kangaroo court. This is not legitimate. In fact, in legal terms, this is called a fishing expedition, right? It's not a trial at all. This powerful man thought he could drag Jesus in front of him in chains, throw his weight around, intimidate the Lord, and get him to self-incriminate. But he has no chance against Jesus. Jesus is not going to assist him in giving him what he wanted. In fact, what Jesus has done here is turn the indictment back on Annas in what he's doing. Verse 22, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So this is a, a leader of the Jewish temple guard, and he interprets this as disrespect towards the high priest. My guess is this guy had never seen anybody stand up to Annas, ever. Certainly not bring his integrity into question. So you get a sense that what Jesus said that night, it, it got to under this guy's skin. So he, he slaps him. He punches him. This is the first illegal blow that Jesus receives. And he'll have to endure many more over the next few hours. But once again, Jesus raises the issue of, of standards and injustice. Verse 23, Jesus answered him to the guard, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Turn the indictment back on him. In all of this, Jesus doesn't retaliate. He calmly and matter-of-factly points out the hypocrisy of these people. They're accusing him of wrongdoing while doing what? Wrong. So he turns it around on them. And so failing to get out of Jesus what he wants, in verse 24, it says, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Get him out of here. Take him to Caiaphas. That's all John gives us now at this night. Okay? There's much more to come. If you need to look at that, look in, look in Luke, look in Matthew. Jesus is going to have to go through a second illegal trial under the cover of darkness, this time before Caiaphas. Then according to Luke, he's held in custody by the temple guard where they, they smack him around some more and they mock him. And then finally, as the sun begins to rise on that Friday morning, finally an official trial before the entire Supreme Council. And what's going to happen there? They're going to hastily pull in false witnesses that give very strange testimony that's contradictory. But at least they can say, well, we checked that box. We did this legally. And at the end of it all, Annas and Caiaphas come to the conclusion that they had predetermined from the very beginning, right? They had a predetermined outcome. And what was it? This guy's a blasphemer who deserves death. And God the Father says, my plan is coming into focus. That's what you have to realize. It, it, this can be sad, right? We think, about, we think about our Lord being smacked, and it hurts my soul. Does it, does it hurt your soul to think that the Son of God was treated this way? 
But this is the Father's plan. It's coming into, it's coming into to fruition. It's, it's happening. This is all part of the process. So let's talk now about what we can learn from this, from both what Jesus does and what Peter does. What does this mean for our lives? Let me start with this. If you've never failed the Lord and you can't identify with Peter at all, we should talk after the service. Because the truth is, whether by our actions, our speech, our thoughts, or our motives, we have all failed Jesus spectacularly. Every one of us. Maybe not as dramatically as Peter, but we've all been there. In the same way we likely haven't gotten a, a literal rooster crow, right, to tell us what we've done, but metaphorically we have. We've heard those things. Where after the fact we realized just how awfully we've betrayed the one that we love. And then metaphorically, he's made eye contact with us, right? Because he sees all. And, and the word of God is held up to us as a mirror and we can see our failure, right? Or the spirit within us convicts us of our sin and our betrayal. So yeah, we get that look as well. So although the circumstances between Peter and you and I are different, the, the core of it remains the same. It is sometimes hard to believe that we act in ways that deny his lordship in our lives. Every single one of us. So let me share a couple of warnings that we can take from Peter here so that we don't fall into the same trap that Peter did that night. First of all, remember, Peter was coming off a rebuke in the garden. He was wounded. He was hurt. Because when he pulled out that sword, he thought he was showing loyalty to the Lord. He thought he was proving himself to Jesus, but he was rebuked instead. And, and this is sort of, this is Peter in a nutshell. And I know some of you, I'm one of those guys, I, I completely identify with Peter. <laughs> I know some of you do as well. But this is him in a nutshell, right? Strong words, big promises, a lot of bluster, and falling flat on his face. Falling so short, right? Because Peter's a man of confidence. He's a man of confidence. He trusts in the strength of his love for Jesus. He trusts in his firm commitment to the Lord. Do you remember what he said? Even if all the others abandon you, Jesus, I will never. Man, how many, how many times have you heard yourself saying words like that, only to fall so woefully short? So the first lesson that comes out of this, there it is. I'm actually on the right screen. Praise the Lord. Be careful. Lest you overestimate your strength. And the pride in your heart causes you to fall hard. You overestimate your strength and you fall flat and you fall spectacularly. Now, as I say that, don't get me wrong, it's a good thing to want to be strong in the Lord. It's a good thing to pray for that, to strive for that. We're told in Scripture to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm against the devil. Strength is a good thing, but the Bible's always cautious to tell us what is it that produces that strength in us? What produces that strong stand? Friends, it doesn't come from us. Our flesh is weak. Every one of us. I know we're all on a, at different levels in our walk with Jesus, but our flesh is weak. That's what Peter found out that night. All that confidence and bluster and those strong words, and then a little bit of stress and pressure, 
and he folded like a cheap suit. God said through his prophet Jeremiah, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, not, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, Yahweh. That's it. So true, true strength that stands firm in the face of temptation like Peter faced, it comes from a vibrant, dynamic walk with the living God. Period. There's no shortcut. Paradoxically, we're strongest when we surrender our strength to him. Right? And lean into him and not trust in ourselves. That's what Peter needed to know that night. And he fell hard. That's number one. Second lesson is also obvious. And it has to do with our propensity to fail in degrees over time. First, we start with what we call, well, it's just a little sin. It's just a little lie that's just a servant girl. No big deal. Just a little sin, but then we pile another sin on top of that first one, and then another, and another. And as I said, it gets easier to give in to temptation as we progress down that slope. Just like Peter's lies that night. In his mind, listen, how many of you guys are really practical? You're like, well, if I tell that little white lie, it'll get me out of this fix I'm in. But that's the beginning, right? That's the beginning of going down that slope. So one step leads to another until it's too late and we are completely over our heads and we find ourselves entrenched in a habit that betrays our love for Jesus. The, first, the second principle builds on the first. We overestimate our strength, then we start down this slope of lies, and pretty soon we're like, how did I get here? That rooster crows, and we're like, how did I end up here? Well, we started down that slope. Our actions, our reactions, our behaviors, and by these things, we hate to say it, but what we're, what we're basically conveying is, I don't know the man, like Peter did. And when we come to our senses and that rooster crows and we shake our heads, we're like, how did this happen? Well, it, we know how it happened. We, we took a, path, a step down that path and we kept going. Proverbs talks often about there's two paths, the path to, the path to life and the, the path to death. So it's a, it's a legitimate question for all of us. Which path right now are you walking down? We're all walking somewhere and maybe we're trying to straddle it. Get on the path of life. Believe what the word says about this. The great Puritan John Owen, who quite literally wrote the book on mortifying sin, gives some really practical advice. He says this, throw everything against sin when it first appears. Everything when it first appears. Before it has sunk its teeth in you. When you still have your spiritual wits about you. But to think to do that, to want to do that, you must walk with the Lord and stay near Him, near to Him every day. It is your nearness to Christ that makes you care to put your temptations down. Those are wise words. Friends, consider the path you're on. If you're on a path to sin right now, throw everything you have against it right now. Lean into the Lord, into His strength. Say, Lord, I don't want to be on this path. Don't keep walking. Third and final lesson, and this one is super practical. This is something that is, has served me for decades since I was a young man in the Lord. It's this, how often does the Bible tell us to be on alert? All the time. 15 times in the New Testament. Yet how often do we walk into our day unprepared? 
and not on alert. Peter's a prime example. Why was he outmatched that night? Because he wasn't ready. He wasn't alert. He wasn't aware. And he was walking into the teeth of temptation. And we do the same thing. Then we're surprised. We walk into our day. We stumble in. We're not prepared. And then temptation comes. And we're like, wow, that came out of nowhere. Did it? It just popped up. It came so suddenly. Is it sudden? Or were we just not ready? Were we not alert to our circumstances? Were we not alert to our inner man? Right? Our own hearts. So be careful where you place yourself, the the positions you put yourself in. Why would you go into the courtyard of the high priest where everybody's going to recognize you and you know to save your own skin you're going to have to tell a bunch of lies? Get out of there. Get out of there. Say no to those situations. And if you feel like you're getting sucked into something, get up and move. Change locations. The Bible says flee. That's a great word. But be ready to do that. Don't keep going down that slope. Get up and move. Say, I got to change my, 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 as I pray and lean into the Lord, I'm going to move because this is a bad path. In summary, then, know that your strength is not enough to win the battle. Know that when, when sin first crops up, throw everything you have against it. And third, be on alert and be ready to move when temptation pops up in front of you. Now, all of that's super heavy, so I promised Grant that I would end with a brief encouragement. <laughs> but no, these are, really good, these are really good lessons, right? I mean, the, why, why would Jesus in his word say, you know what, I'm going to hold up Peter <laughs> and say, sorry, dude, I know this is rough. It, it's for our edification, right? It's so that we can learn these lessons so we don't repeat them. But take note of Peter as he weeps bitterly after denying the Lord. Take note of it. Because these weren't just a, 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 little, a little gentle cry. This wasn't just you know, a few tears. These are tears of shame. Peter's a broken man. And here's why he's broken. Because he loves Jesus. He really does. And I know those of us in here this morning, we really love Jesus. If you're not broken over your sin, that's something you need to examine in your heart. What is my level of love for Jesus? But Peter loved Jesus, and that's why he's so broken. And this is also what it means to be a Christ follower. Right? When we sin against the Lord, even in spectacular ways or in in, in ways that are betrayal, what do we do next? What do we do? Do we do we run from, from the Lord? Do we try to hide from him? Do we, do we blame other people? Do we make excuses? Do we try to deny that anything's wrong? Not if we love Jesus. We run to him, to those arms, right, that are open wide. Prodigal son. We run to him, and we confess what we've done, and we, and we cling to him again. As our daddy, we cling to him, and we confess our love through tears of repentance, It's been said a hundred times. I'll say it again. Repentance is not what bad Christians do. Repentance, even through tears, is what every Christian does. That is the normal Christian life. To stumble, to fall, to to be to fall short, but then to run back to Jesus 
and through tears repent. That is the normal Christian life because we trust that when we do that, he will come to our aid and he will bind up our broken hearts and he will wipe away those tears and he will remind us that his grace is sufficient and that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. That's the, that's the bigger lesson of Peter. We reject Judas's response to his guilt and shame and we affirm the process that Peter is about to go through. He's going to allow sin to break his heart, but not his faith. He's going to run to Jesus. He is going to trust that even these grave denials of Jesus are not fatal, but they're redeemable by the blood of the Lamb. And that's where we have to be as well. Thankfully, as we look at the contrast between Peter and Jesus, we have a Savior who resisted every temptation that came his way. Right? He leaned into his father to strengthen him. He resisted every temptation. And thankfully, if you're found in Christ today, his righteousness, what he earned by that perfect life, is now your righteousness. He gets all of your sin, and you get all of his righteousness. That is the good news of the gospel. So as we look at this story, we step back and we go, we look at Peter, see yourself, and then look at the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And say with the hymn writer, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I'm going to have you bow your heads. I hope that's an encouraging end because we're all Peter. But look at our Savior. Spend a few moments, if you would, just praising Jesus for who he is, for his grace in your life, for the many times that he has welcomed you back as a prodigal son or daughter. Praise him for that this morning. And in just a moment, Grant will pull us out and we'll sing some more.